0: We're now very close, on the brink of a global employee mental health crisis. We're all humans. No one should feel sad at work. Hello and welcome to The
1: Growth Business, a podcast sponsored by Sapphire, home of frictionless digital systems. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and this month, my guest is a man who comes bearing a stark warning. Business, he says, has entered a new period of crisis, and how we respond to it, well, that will define our future. Nigel Kilpatrick is sometimes referred to as the champion of compassion. He's a keynote speaker, coach, podcast host and trainer. Nigel, welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Great to see you, Lucy.
1: It's great to see you. Now, look, let's let's get straight into it, because um, you've got some fascinating figures. You've got some Gallup data of a terrible crisis that's afflicting the global workforce. Tell me what those figures are and what, what it represents, and then we can talk about what we're going to do about it.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the Gallup did this amazing piece of research actually for 2022. So it's very, very recent. And I think the, the snippets of the, of the information are this, which is globally, you've got half the workforce that are feeling stressed. <clears throat> which I think is probably no surprise to a lot of people because I think a lot of business leaders and people managers kind of say, well, stress is inevitable in, in business. But I think if you start to peel away the onion layer a little bit around the data, then you start to realize that 40% of the population feel worry, have anxiety, which is completely different to stress. And in fact, when you get deeper into it, and this is the troubling bit for me when I read the report, almost 20% of the workforce, so one in five, so people just imagining their entire work company in a room, one fifth of those people are miserable, miserable. But here's the other thing, one fifth, probably the same, are feeling sad, sad, which is crazy in this kind of, we're all humans, no one should feel sad at work. And I said, you know, I keep on saying, if this was my mum, my dad, my cousin, my brother, my aunt, my, whoever it might be, and I knew they were feeling sad, I'd do something about it. So why are we doing something about it when we're at work? It's really important. So I think, we're, you know, we're now very close, we're on the brink of a global employee mental health crisis that I think is going to last for decades. And, you know, we talk about the root cause of those, but, you know, the, all the data is doing is just saying, hey here's the effect of something, here's the information about what's going on. So we're going to really delve into the issues of what's going on. Yeah, but the data is not great. So I'm I'm really quite concerned about it. So I'm on a I'm on a mission to make yeah, everyone absolutely, a
1: and so you should be. So, I mean, what is going on?
0: I think there's a lot of things going on. I think a lot of things that people can do, particularly who are listening to this, around what technology can do, but what people can do. But what's really going on is that we've been overregulated. We have got loads of policies in place that, again, are just the effect of you know decades and decades of corporate mismanagement. You know, customer service. You know, horrible stories going on there. So we've, we've kind of overregulated ourselves by masking the, tr- the true situation. But we can cope with that. The other things that are affecting people at work are the things that happen at home. So, you know, we've got an, a cost of living crisis going on, which is horrendous for most people. You know, people, and I talk to a lot of people who say, I've got employees who have to make an, an eat or heat decision every, every week. And I can't do much about it because I can't raise the raise the pay because I can't afford to do it because my cost of my supply chain is going up. So my margin is going down. So I'm in this catch-22 situation. So that's going on. We have the things that are, are real, which is the, cli- the global climate crisis. That is affecting people's emotions. We can't get away from that the new world of working at home. We can't get away from that. I was a real bad person at doing this. I just say to everyone, leave your home problems at the door. Don't bring them into the office. But now you can't do that because the office is home. So we can't separate those two worlds. And neither we should separate them because problems are emotional and they're human so there are a lot of these factors that are going on so these are a lot of root causes that are genuine and real and if i you know you and i both come from, a, from a, a world of technology and i do think the over expense and over investment or, or probably right investment, but wrong allocation of technology hasn't helped us. You know, I was talking about this just recently that, you know, in 1974 to 2008, as a country in the UK, we were, you know, annually growing our output at 2.4%. And then from 2008 down to 2020, that's gone down to 0.5%. But we've spent more in technology over the last two decades than we ever have done. So I think is technology stressing people out? Is technology causing anxiety? Well, of course it is. So I think there's a lot of root causes that are causing the effects. So we've got to do something about it.
1: It's really interesting that you say that the technology is causing stress because particularly, well, you say you and I, we're both in technology. We've got to find our a way out of that and we've got to get the right technology that helps people. Do you see sort of AI and automation as being on the positive side of that balance sheet? Is that going to help us?
0: Oh, I think automation and AI are the saviors of this, actually, believe it or not. But I'm going to caveat this by saying, I, I come from a world of trying to help everyone be more compassionate through leadership and through policy and process, everything else like that. So what automation and AI rely on is a decision from a human to make that work appropriately. So it's how we think about the technology that we're going to have and how we deploy it and how we implement it that comes from us as human beings that will make the impact. But from a functional perspective, automation and artificial intelligence can be used so beautifully to take away a lot of the unnecessary work that people are doing that's causing them anxiety and stress i know that chris you know chris uh, also at Sapphire, he calls it the hyperwork, and i think this phrase a hyper is absolutely brilliant because it allows us to become human again you know we think about time now how much time am i am i spending doing something that I don't really need to do, but I do it because that's what I've been employed to do. So as business leaders, we've got to start thinking, actually, right in front of us, if we think better, if we think more compassionately, I can actually deploy this technology in a much safer, more human way. That's going to drive my productivity up. It's going to help me create a kind, supportive culture. And I and I talk about this part going back to the Gallup data that forty four percent of the global workforce now think this is a good time to look for a job. If I'm a business leader, I want to be with that company that's attracting that 44%. So I've got to start doing things for my customer, by thinking more compassionately about the use of technology. I've got to be thinking more about my employees, but thinking more compassionately as an IT director, the CIO, a project manager... If I'm putting compassion first in how I map out my processes, I'm gonna automate them or where it might be, then the end result is gonna be fantastic. So absolutely, I think those two technologies, I think artificial intelligence particularly, I think will be will be immense for for, for if we use it correctly. If we use it badly, then we'll get the same result, right?
1: I, I know that it divides people and that people do feel half the people I speak to feel threatened because they feel that their jobs are directly going to be impacted by AI. And then the other half feel excited because, like you, they can see an increase in productivity coming from it. Maybe it depends what you do for a living and whether you're you're a a manager who needs to drive the bottom line. It will affect your uh, attitude to AI.
0: It's not really about loss of jobs. It's about redeployment of jobs. And I think and this is where AI can be particularly useful for us. I think if you're sitting on the side of the fence that says AI is a threat, you're not looking at it properly. You know, you're, you're kind of not understanding what its real value is. And actually, when I talk about AI helping productivity, yes, I'm talking about actual output of pound per hour. But I'm actually talking about happy productivity. I'm talking about when someone can go home and not carry the baggage of the day with them that affects their family. I created stress for people who used to work for me so unnecessarily I didn't really consider what was going to be the impact when they got home and how that kind of impact negative impact spreads to their family members and they go to work the following day and the same thing happens. So there's absolute productivity in, in pounds per hour And let me just say say this as a side note, because, you know, I love my data, that pre-COVID, the national output for the UK was £24 an hour. It's now £12 per hour. But it's the same person doing the same piece of work. We haven't replaced th- that human being. The difference is, is the emotional state of that human being that's going to create the 12 pounds or the 24 pounds. Today, we're very on the side of 12 because we're making it difficult for them to do their job. We're putting anxiety and stress into their human, human psyche on a daily basis. We're not making them feel valued and supported. I, and I do think from a technology perspective, because we're making that we've got too many applications to do a simple task, I think we could do a lot, of, a lot of consolidation in that space. But those that are generating £24 are happy, feel valued, feel supported, have got the right applications, the right number of applications and the right tools to do their job. So it's not a complicated situation, but we have to be brave enough to do it.
1: It's fascinating talking about the intersection between you know all this hor- horrible Gallup data and, and technology. What also about if we bring a third thing in here, if we bring in leadership and culture and the importance of those things.
0: Leadership, I actually I sit in the fence about this whole phrase because i kind of fall into the industry about compassionate leadership. But to me, I've, I have a problem with that because that makes the phrase itself is elitist. Leadership and compassion has to be absolutely ubiquitous across the entire organization. Because when we get down to the core of who we are as people, we are compassion. We are love. That's all we are. It's just how over the centuries and centuries we've put fogs around us and put armour around us that make us feel that we should act differently. But no, we're just loving, compassionate spirits of energy. That's what we are. So when it comes to leadership, I think we and I and I can't wait for the next generation to come into the market. Oh, I'm just so excited about it because they they kind of have this already kind of built-in desire to become more compassionate where, you know, I'm 56 years old. I came from you know grew up in a completely different world. I can't wait for them to come in, into the new marketplace, but we're going to be concerned know, we're going to be ready for them. They're going to be ready to, we're going to give them the tools and they've got to manage better. So leadership to me, compassion leadership to me is about looking at ourselves in the mirror Really beginning to understand that, yes, we own KPIs. Yes, we own targets. Yes, we've got lots of things we have to achieve. We've got to make sure we're always driving our productivity and our profitability, but we cannot take the eye off the ball of what it means to be human. And if we're just brave enough with ourselves to say, I am a human and everyone else around me is just the same, and I start treating them with trust and respect and generosity, and I have patience and I have self-compassion, I have all these kind of the traits of what it means to be a compassionate leader, then everyone is going to be happier. So the culture happens as a byproduct of, of how we are. Because I actually don't believe you create a culture. You know, a lot of people, oh, we've got company values and all that kind of stuff. Well, culture comes from human beings. It should just happen by itself. If we're kind, you get a kind culture. If you're not kind, no matter what you say in a PowerPoint, you just don't get a kind culture it's just the way it is so as human beings we just have to realize we've got to do better we have to be more human with ourselves we have to be looking ourselves in the mirror i think a lot at the moment to help us be to create a culture that that we all want and a legacy we all need to leave i think if we're doing this the way we make technology decisions will also become much much better Because we're thinking better, we're acting better, happier, healthier, without stress and anxiety. To me, it's just common sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, like you, am really excited about what the Gen Z leadership is going to look like. And I hope we're um, still around in some form to experience that. I mean, we're we're fascinated as a society right now, though, by, um, by those kind of like maverick leaders. The Rupert Murdochs, the whole kind of thing on TV about succession focusing in on on those kind of oligarchical style of, of leadership. And then Elon Musk, we're fascinated with him. These aren't really the people we should necessarily be looking to as role models, and yet... We keep pouring over their characteristics, don't we, with fascination.
0: Yeah, and actually, if you think about it, I quite like that they're becoming almost Disney characters. The bad monsters in a Disney character, I think that's where we're going to we're going to look at it. The truth is we do have to be mindful of of what we see, and, and I love watching Succession. I think it's fantastic. But I'm glued to it, and I, I I see myself sometimes in some of the actions that are, that are going on there. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I hadn't done that long, long ago. But I think what we have to start to do is think about how... How we educate the next generation of management leaders, so schooling you know college universities coursework, open university, you know all the courses you do when you join a new new company, like the fast track management schemes that are put in place. We have to start looking at those. This is where the rubber hits the road, really, because I'm a manager. I'm going to act how I'm taught and what I see and what I learn. And if my, if my only view of my data point of education is watching succession, we're in trouble. Or if I'm going to follow the Elon Musk world, that's going to be a problem. So we have to get back to grassroots about how we're going to teach people. Because no one's taught compassion when you go to management school. You're not taught compassion when you go through your onboarding. Uh, to join it to start a new job. But actually, uh, it, it's that's where we had to start teaching it. Otherwise, we're going to be in the same boat forever.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It, it's very interesting to see how our culture is being reflected back at us by television and films and, and things. And maybe that's a way that we learn what we look at. You talked about looking in the mirror a lot. It's quite hard to see ourselves, isn't it? Unless we see it represented in, in books and, and television. I mean, there was a time when business was a dirty word, full stop. And you never saw it on mm, television.
0: That's true, I think more Steve, more Steve Bartlett's, please. I think that's what we need more—more more empathetic, more sympathetic, genuine, authentic people. We just again, we just have to get back to who we are as humans, and that is kindness and love. That's all we are,
1: and that's what drives you. I was going to ask you what drives you.
0: It took me about three decades to admit that I would have—you know—a decade ago, five years ago, I would never have said that about me. I'd have never said that we're all love and kindness, and we need to treat people with respect and and dignity. I was the one that dissing out stress like it was part of the company policy. You no, know, Like, you know, Nigel, I, I haven't hit my number. I'll have some more stress. That'll do you good. You know, I, we can't hit our SLA. We'll have a lot more stress. That'll be even better for you. I wasn't like that. And I think what the turning point for me when I had to take an organization through COVID which a lot of us did and I'm not unique in this by any stretch but I had to grow a business by revenue I had to double it by revenue by headcount. I had to completely change an operating model I had to change as most people did the way that we we're hiring people cause it was all done remotely I knew that I wouldn't meet people for two years face to face I knew that we wouldn't meet customers face to face so I took a long look in the mirror and said okay what have you learned over the last three decades in a positive way that's going to help you do this because at the same time I, i'm doing a lot of spiritual work at the same time so i kind of openly admitted on my when i arrived in day one in the company i said i'm going to be a very spiritual leader for you and that took a lot of courage for me to say that to admit it to myself so i looked at myself for an awful long time and said are you the kind of character now that could say that and i kind of went well i'm just going to say it and see what happens but I kind of had to live by that. So I kind of went back into my career and said, OK, what are the best things that I've learned? How can I bring this to bear? But I've got to put people first. I've got to make sure because people were scared. You know, we had 1,200 engineers in China. We were watching what was going on. We were seeing that wave of anxiety and stress happening. And so I was a, I was a bit prepared, but I knew it was going to be a lot of worry for, for a lot of people, myself included, because no one knew it was going to happen. But I had to change the way that I ran the organization. I had to change myself first. That's what drives me. And I've come out of the pandemic and I'm seeing worry and stress and concern on a lot of people's faces. And I want to do something about it. And what I don't want to do is say, uh, this is about mindfulness. This is about having employee welfare programs. They are important, but this is, that's not going to change this. It's not. On its own, you know, we're going to have to do a lot of operating model changes. We have to think about our supply chain. We have to think about the way that uh, the tech operates, you know, simple things that drive, me, drive us crazy and frustration. We can get rid of all of that. And that goes back to your very valid point about automation and AI can play a real uh, play a massive role in that for us to be healthier Live longer, live a better life of yeah. rambling a bit. that's what That was my story. No,
1: no, it's it's perfect. and Yeah, and you brought it full circle by bringing it back round to what we were talking about right at the beginning, which was about technology and the fact that we're in the technology business and we have to be compassionate. And I guess if we just close with some, some closing thoughts maybe about how as technology providers, we can be more compassionate to people who at the end of the day are end users are the people that we are in service to. And however wonderful the technology that we bring them, if they don't use it, we're not going to have them help them in any way. So we do need to be compassionate to our customers as well as our staff. And
0: Let me group, the, group it by saying anyone who's in technology from decision-making, implementation, project management, wherever it might be, we have a massive responsibility to help change the world. And I think at, at the face of it, that might sound a bit odd, because a lot of people think, well, compassion is a is a human resources issue. It's a people team issue. I'm in tech. What's it got to do with me? Well, actually, you hold the key to the kingdom. Because what you know, what we do as technologists is foundational the way our business operates. Fifty years ago, we didn't have a role to play. But we are that role. We are the role that's going to make things happen or not. So if we start putting compassionate decision-making, which is not really a leadership style, it's the way we think, and we're really thinking around our customer journey processes, you know, are they genuinely authentic? In other words, I used to to put a customer journey process in. I knew what question to ask for my NPS course to go up. I knew it. That's what I did. But are they genuine? We have to start thinking about that. You know, our supply chain. How frustrating it is, it for our, co- you know, all that kind of stuff. We hold the keys today as technologists. So it's a cry out to help from all of my fellow technologists. Please, we can make the world more compassionate by thinking compassionately. That's what we've got to do.
1: Thank you, Nigel. You've made a very, very strong case for that today. And I'm very, very pleased with you uh, <laughs> that you were able to join me. Um, that's oh, it for you. this episode of The Growth Business, sadly. But if you do want to know more about coaching and mentoring from for Compassion. I'm going to leave uh, Nigel's details in the show notes, but that's it for now. See you next time. Goodbye.